1973 was a weird year. President Nixon resigned after Watergate, and Pink Floyd let their music be used in a commercial for bananas of all things. If you find the commercial on YouTube, you see a woman kind of dancing in the sky, and then the slogan, The dull banana, if you feel it, peel it. Which can be interpreted all kinds of different ways. But the weirdest thing about it, which you'll learn in this episode, is that bananas really don't need to be advertised. They're everywhere from your local coffee shop to your discount grocer to your premium grocer. And they all kind of cost the same and have for a long time. It's sort of that staple food that everyone uses to compare prices. There's a whole industry behind bananas from people whose job it literally is to ripen them on a scale from one to seven from green to brown and all kinds of recipes. You can make like a vegan bacon with the the peels. I haven't eaten this, but you could do it if you wanted to. In this episode of Rolled Up, we're talking about sustainability and how customers are looking to make better choices, both in terms of the moral implications with documentaries coming out on Netflix, highlighting some of the underbelly of the world of food and where your food comes from, but also for their bodies eating foods that are a little bit more natural and the way they're intended to be ingested, not just photographed for the gram. Joining me at the end is Jamie Sutton. You may know him as the GM over at Omnisend or employee number zero from Shopify Plus. And we talk about how the industry has been changing. But first, my interview with Kim from Equifruit, Canada's leading fair trade certified banana importer. So any fruit distributor who has ripening rooms, they will tell you that if you have a good ripener, they're either going to make or break your business because bananas, since they're so, so popular, they go on to pretty much every order if you're ordering produce to your store. So if you have properly ripened bananas, you're going to be able to sell way more other fruits and vegetables. Now, banana ripeners know a lot about how bananas ripen and they're going to know how to guide that fruit in this ripening process to make sure that it ripens properly because the store that's going to buy them next they want to have a good shelf life of about a week to be able to sell that product Mm -hmm. and if the fruit is ripened too quickly it will continue to ripen too quickly Joining me today is Kim Shackrell, the Director of Sales and Marketing at Equifruit. And Equifruit is a group of diehard believers in ethical fruit sourcing, especially when it comes to bananas. Now, we've all eaten bananas. We've all gone to a grocery store and and seen bananas right at the front and maybe even advertised as our prices won't be beaten. It doesn't matter if you go to Whole Foods or No Frills or Johnny's Discount Grocer. Bananas all seem to always be the same price. And we're going to get into some of the reasons why that is, a little bit of the history of bananas. And I just want to warn you that once you listen to this podcast, you'll never look at bananas the same way again. So Kim, thank you so much for joining me on Rolled Up. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we got connected on LinkedIn. And since we we got connected, I've been seeing the the Equifruit uh, logo a little in more and more places. I've bought uh, a few a few bananas since then, and they definitely taste better. They just seem to like the quality of the fruit seems better nice. to me. But one thing 
that I thought is interesting on another podcast I heard is just talking about fair trade still being being trade. And I'd love to just hear here uh, as we were talking about in the green room, you were asking me if the, the coffee I was drinking is is fair trade. What does that mean? And what's sort of the philosophy behind fair trade still being trade? So just to give a little perspective to the listeners today, when I'm talking about fair trade, when I'm speaking specifically about fair trade and our certification at Equifruit, I'm speaking about fair trade in one word, which is the name of our certifying body. So Equifruit bananas are certified by Fair Trade Canada, which is part of the Fair Trade International System. You can go on to fairtrade.ca and learn a little bit more and see the little symbol of the little guy with the blue and green logo. But when we're talking about fair trade in general, you'll you'll often see it written about in two words. So fair space trade, where we're really just talking about decency and an ethical framework in the marketplace, making sure that both the buyer and the seller are protected, that they have advantages, that nobody is basically getting screwed in the supply chain, right? Just a little bit more, more broadly. So Equifruit is a private company. We choose to bring in 100% of our bananas on fair trade certification because we want to make sure that there is that advantage for the farmers, that they're paid well. You know, you said a second ago, when you come into a grocery store and you see really cheap bananas, you really do have to ask yourself, like, who's paying for this? Because nothing in life comes free. Or if you see something cheap, somebody is paying for it or getting the short end of the stick. So fair trade, really, you can be a private company and have fair trade certification. It's just basically letting your customers know that you are respecting standards that are protecting, you know, the beginning and the end of the supply chain. And I can go into more detail, but I'll just answer that quickly. No, I, uh, I really like that, that definition. And I'd love to just hear more about the banana supply chain. So sort of from the banana Republic to my local grocery store and maybe on my, uh, Nutella, uh, toast or something that I can do to make it really as unhealthy as possible, but purely delicious. Yeah. It was just very eye-opening for me to hear where the bananas come from and how they get to Canada or the U.S., where, wherever we happen to be eating them, and really some of the – and I mean, I'd love to chat about some of the ways that Agrofruit is promoting sustainability of both the, the planet, but again, more that, that conscious capitalism type of mentality. Yeah. So as you said, you know, once you hear a little bit more about bananas, maybe you've never thought about bananas. Maybe, you know, they are the most widely consumed fruit in Canada. We buy way more bananas than anything else. And they do come from far away and they are pretty finicky. And yet, ironically, they are the cheapest fruit in our basket. And so that I hope that today this is just an eye opening experience for your listeners to just question that and to do a little bit more digging. So I'm just going to scratch the surface today, but I would encourage you to just get on your computer or on your phone and Google like the history of the banana companies. And it's a guaranteed jaw dropping <laughs> knowledge bomb. You're you'll totally freak out. You know, when you just you use the term banana republic, you know, most people think of a clothing store and they don't really know much about where that term comes from. So really, really quick overview um, in the late 1800s. The companies, Standard Fruit Company and United Fruit Company, which later became Dole and Chiquita, they were formed. They saw an opportunity to take this fruit that was really prevalent in South and Central America, 
the banana and to open up a market in in North America for this fruit. And over the following decades, and I'm really condensing a whole bunch of history, but in over the following decades, they basically reorganized these countries, set up railways, set up their supply chain in a way to efficiently get product to market. And in order to do so, they they literally took over governments, infiltrated governments, shut down unions, prevented unions. There were massacres, there were assassinations, uh, really some dark, dark stuff to be able to get this fruit to North America at a price that would be more competitive than our local apple. That was the goal and they achieved it, right? If you go to your grocery store today, you'll see bananas for what, 59 cents a pound, 69 cents a pound. I saw 57. I think it was, they won't be beat. No, they won't be beat. They won't. And your local apple would be what, two bucks a pound, maybe three bucks a pound. I think a pound of apples is like two apples. It's it's not that much. Or because I remember I was buying some Honeycrisp apples and I'm like, okay, so I'm paying a bit. Like each apple was about a pound because of the moisture. So it's right. It's crazy to think of what a pound of food is. You think, okay, it's 57 cents, but then you actually end up spending eight, $9 on apples, but bananas are a buck 30. Yeah, for sure. Totally. It's, it's crazy. These companies wanted to get this fruit here at this really cheap price. The history is awful, but you know what? In terms of hitting their goals, they did it, right? They opened up this market. They spent the between the 30s and the 60s really heavily marketing to North Americans what a banana is, how to consume it, how to store it, what else you can do with it, which seems crazy. We don't think about fruits and vegetables being marketed to us, but there's an enormous amount of marketing that goes into how to consume a fruit in order for it to be widely popular. Like if you just look into avocados today versus 10 years ago, 10 years ago, you might've seen it in a couple of sushi restaurants, but nobody was putting it on toast the way that they're lathering it on today. So really there's quite a bit of marketing that goes into that. And what consumers don't really know is it's a really complex supply chain. So for Equifruit, our bananas come from Peru and Ecuador. We, we work with cooperatives of small producers. So after the fruit is cut and harvested, which That whole process is about nine months. The fruit will then be washed and cut up into bunches and banded and put into these 40 pound cases. And that fruit is cut green and packed in the container. We have about almost a thousand cases in a container. And then it's put at 14 degrees so that while it's on its journey by boat and truck over the next two and a half weeks, it stays asleep. It doesn't wake up and start ripening. That 14 degrees, like that perfect temperature to keep it happy. And then once it arrives to either uh, Ontario or Quebec, it will be delivered to the distributor who has professional ripening rooms. That fruit will then go into these ripening rooms where they are sealed off and they will use a combination of heat and humidity and ethylene gas, which is the same natural gas that the banana emits itself. And over the next four to five days, the ripener will guide that ripening process so that that fruit arrives on the shelf at your local uh, you know, Johnny discount or wherever it is that you shop. Mm-hmm. And it'll look exactly the color that that store wants it to be. If they want it at a stage three, it'll be mostly green with yellow tips. If they want it at a stage four, it'll be almost all yellow with slightly green tips. So 
all of this work goes into getting this fruit here to us so perfectly, and it is just at rock bottom prices even today. So Equifruit is doing things differently by making sure that the prices are a little bit higher because we have that fair trade certification and the farmers are paid this fair trade price. It's just fascinating, that whole history. And the one thing that really stood to me was you you mentioned the the ripening rooms and mm -hmm. but what is the the job description of a ripener so if i'm a ripener mm -hmm. what am i be essentially being paid to do how does that work so this is such an important job and you know any fruit distributor who has ripening rooms they will tell you that if you have a good ripener they they're they're either going to make or break your business because bananas since they're so so popular they go on to pretty much every order if you're ordering produce to your store. So if you have properly ripened bananas, you're going to be able to sell way more other fruits and vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. So the job of the ripener is in one sentence to get the bananas from green to yellow. That's their job. Now, banana ripeners know a lot about how bananas ripen, how that might be affected by a number of things, the origin where did this fruit come from? Did it come from Costa Rica or Honduras or Guatemala or Peru or Ecuador? Each one of these countries has their own climate, their own, even though it's the same variety of banana that we see here, the Cavendish banana, it might look a little bit different uh, from country to country in terms of size or curvature. And they're going to know how to guide that fruit in this ripening process to make sure that it ripens properly. Because if they give it too much heat or too much gas or too soon or not soon enough, it can spoil and it can ripen so quickly. They'll say the fruit blows up, you know, that it's almost like burning something in the oven, right? You left it in at this temperature. So there, a ripener will put the fruit into these different rooms. They'll check on it every couple of hours. They'll have a team that's there overnight. It's like, you know, babysitting these, these pallets and making sure that they get exactly to where they need to go because the store that's going to buy them next, they want to have a good shelf life of about a week to be able to sell that product. Mm -hmm. And if the fruit is ripened too quickly, it will continue to ripen too quickly. Or if it's not ripened enough, it might just not ripen at all once it gets to the store. And it'll be called like in French, we say banane de bois, which is like a wooden banana. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you bought a bunch and it just like stayed green. Yeah. And it's like very fibery. Yeah. Super starchy. Like, like it is. It's like a very pithy yeah, exactly. to use a, to use a, a weird wood term I learned <laughs> during the pandemic. Yeah. So the fruit has sugar in it, right? And that sugar, when the sugar is triggered, that's what gets the ripening process. So what will naturally trigger that sugar production is this combination of heat and ethylene gas and humidity. Uh, but if it's not triggered enough, then it just kind of, it, it won't continue to ripen on its own. So I kind of like to compare it to like baking a potato, right? Like mm -hmm. if you pull out the potatoes too quick, they're not just going to keep cooking on their own. Like the middle of the potato is going to be hard. So they have a really, really tough job and they're hard to come by. You know, the, the, the training to become a banana ripener is technically not very long. Like one of our ripeners in Ontario, he talked about this program that he went to it run by one of the big multinationals. I think it was a three day training of just like an intensive how to do this. But then it's, it's honestly years and years of experience of 
learning, you know, the nuances from each country and each type of fruit, what to do, what not to do. If the fruit's too hot when it arrived there, then you have to like separate the boxes open, air them out. It's a very complex process. And yet, again, the fruit is 57 cents a pound. It just doesn't make sense. No, it it, it doesn't that. I'm picturing the ripener being some like 85-year-old guy walking in with a bunch of like uh, the crest or white strips on the commercial with the stained teeth from like green to brown to be like, yep, that's a, that's a four. Do we have anyone that wants to buy some fours or should we leave it in for another couple hours? <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're a special breed of person. I've never met a ripener who wasn't just like a special, like really like super passionate and really, really into it and takes so much pride in their work because you know, you're the heart of the business. Everybody buys bananas. So if you can ripen the product properly for whatever company you represent, like you have a lot of influence over how successful their business is. Yeah. It's almost like a, a brewmaster or yes. Yes. just the, the one who has the, the keys to, to the car, so to speak. Yeah, totally. Right. And you can teach a hundred people how to brew beer, but like, let's be honest, they're not all going to be awesome at it. No, it's the, I, I take pride in my, my barbecue skills. Oh yeah. And it's the same. It's just learning and doing it and just taking notes and just figuring out what the touch is in, in certain parts and knowing how it will end up setting or settling. And it's just experience and, and time and being weird enough or eccentric enough to, to do it over and over and over again until you develop that, that intuition for it. For sure. I mean, another thing I didn't touch on, but like the ripeners job, they'll also work with a quality team. So, you know, they have to assess the quality of the fruit when it gets there. And if there are any quality issues, they, they know how this might affect the whole lot as it ripens. So, you know, they're basically like this banana genius experts. Banana sommelier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so one thing that um, I saw, I guess, all my, all my good questions are coming from TikTok. It was actually an asparagus farmer talking about how the pandemic had changed asparagus. Yeah. And basically they all had to be packaged as close to one pound as possible so that for Instacart and sending shoppers that if they grab a, a bunch of asparagus, it's a pound, not 0.8 pounds, not 1.4 pounds, but but a pound. Right. How has the pandemic changed uh, fruit buying and just that logistics? I, I'm assuming less going to restaurants and more being split to go to the grocery stores would be an obvious example. Mm-hmm. But what else is it has changed with groceries since the, the pandemic hit? Oh, goodness. I've gone to 10,000 webinars over the last 14 months about exactly that topic. So I'm happy to be quizzed on it. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the key takeaways in terms of the change of consumption habits, because people were mainly going to the grocery store less often, the size of their basket increased. So the first shift that, that was observed was that people were reverting back to like more comfort foods, more familiar items. So apples, carrots, potatoes, tomatoes, bananas, onions, like all that stuff was the classics were were being purchased. They were also looking for product with longer shelf life too, because people were going less frequently. Uh, initially, people were also buying products that were had a little bit more plastic packaging because th- maybe they felt that that was going to be a little more sanitary. There was, it was unclear as to whether COVID could be 
passed over the, on the flesh of the skin, which which we know is not the case. Yeah. But I remember my mom sent me this video of because I was getting groceries for her at the start, and it was a guy who uh, was like washing grapefruits and oranges and other porous vegetables, and he showed how to wash the skins of these porous vegetables. And I'm sure that's fine. Like, yeah, he's not wrong. But if that's what you have to do to live day to day, yeah, there, there are bigger it's not very issues. Sustainable. Yeah, totally. What was really interesting in terms of, you know, change that that resonated with with Equifruit was like, yes, people were going to the grocery store less often. They were buying a lot more bananas. We know we saw up to like 60 percent increase in sales at at the real peak of, of panic buying in May, I would say, last year. We also just saw that there was this shift eventually in terms of like how people were buying you know there was this this focus more on local saying you know how can my how do my purchasing habits affect the people in my community and my country which brand am i choosing you know at first we kind of took whatever brand was on the shelf but as things evolved there was this i've really seen this shift towards more conscious consumerism and actually, our certifying body, Fair Trade Canada, they they did a study with Leger last August, so six months into the pandemic, and it focused on fair trade bananas. But they, before they went into the fair trade like nitty gritty with a survey, they kind of surveyed generally how much people cared about eco and natural and organic and you know all that kind of good granola ish stuff. And mm-hmm. generally, they saw this real shift where people were. They wanted to make sure that farmers were paid well, that, that people were taking care of like the soil and the earth. And they were willing to pay more, which was really interesting, for brands that were making good decisions, that were doing good things in the world. And then specifically on bananas and on fair trade, there was this really interesting data point that came out of that survey, which was that 19% of the people they surveyed between Quebec and Ontario would be willing to switch grocery stores for fair trade bananas. So if you were, what did we call it? Joe discount or whatever, Johnny Johnny discount. And Johnny discount decided to start stocking fair trade bananas, then he could expect, or the owner of the store could expect an increase in sales because more people would be coming, leaving their, wherever they were shopping before and coming in for fair trade bananas, which was like completely the opposite of what all the retailers that I've spoken to over the years have thought, you know, their fear was if I increase my price on bananas and stock fair trade, yeah, sure. Maybe there's like 0.001% of our customers who might care and want to pay more, but the rest will just leave us for the competitors, right? Who continue to offer those 57 cent bananas. So this, this study that came out last August suggested really the opposite of that. And it's it's really a, a trend that we have seen. We have more and more people that are interested in what we're doing now than ever. We've also had this, uh, yeah, just like this huge uptake in sales, a ton of love and support from the community. We're, we're just in Canada right now, but more people are asking about where their food comes from. And bananas, because they fall in that tropical basket, like bananas, pineapples, avocados, we kind of ask less about those. Yeah. Those farmers, you know, we're kind of familiar with our local peach or apple farmer, but we don't ask too much about the tropical stuff. But people are starting to, you know, to shift the discussion more towards those items. And we're we're excited about the work that we're doing. Yeah, and I think it's just so important to have those conversations where, and I, I don't want to paint 
with a two-two side of a brush, but I was talking to another founder, and he said that it's amazing. Just when you you don't have to scratch the surface that far to see not even regular unethical labor, but outright slavery and the different ways that things can get backdoored and, and, and through it. And just the farther you get from the customer, the more you can really get away with. Oh yeah. I mean, like, I think a real shining example of that is cocoa, mm-hmm. you know, and if you look a little bit into the cocoa industry and you learn about how much forced child labor there is in the cocoa industry, I mean, you can't unlearn that. There's a good chance if you've bought a chocolate bar or a product that has chocolate, that if it has it doesn't have a fair trade certification, there's a good chance that that cocoa was picked by a child. It's really, really horrifying. So I think it's important for consumers to to do that research and, you know, to also ask good questions and to verify claims and to to check for certification so that you can be feeling good about the stuff that you're buying. Netflix has done a really good job of it, bringing those conversations up. I, I watched the the Seaspiracy yeah. uh, recently and it, it's good, but it's that, that's a conversation for for another day just about the unethics of uh, of food, but I'd love to end on a much more positive note so we don't yeah. uh, turn it, people off bananas entirely because there are uh, quality products like like yours. What are some fun, creative ways to to enjoy bananas? I I, I was joking about putting it on uh, some toast with Nutella. Um, obviously, you can just eat it. I peel it from the bottom. I don't know if that's correct or not. You can oh, yeah. do the traditional banana split. But what are some just fun banana recipes that people might not think of to just eat more bananas? I mean, I'm a I'm a real traditionalist. I'm like constantly trying to make the best banana bread and best banana muffin or mm. best pe- banana pancake. You know, at one point early in the pandemic, when we saw that people were buying so many bananas and they were really concerned about waste, we started to post a lot of recipes last year about different things that you can do with the peel. Mm-hmm. So uh, Equifruit bananas, most of what we bring in is organic, although last week we announced that we have conventional fair trade bananas at all 36 Longos and on Grocery Gateway. So we do also have conventional bananas. But if you're if you're using one of our organic bananas, I, I'll be honest, I haven't tried this, but I've been told that you can use the peel and eat the peel. If it's just give it a rinse because it is organic. There's no pesticides or herbicides. We shared some recipes for banana bacon. So you can check those out online where you can actually cook the peels with barbecue sauce. Uh, I saw some cool things you can do to repurpose the organic banana peels as fertilizer in your soil. And they're supposed to make, if you don't have a green thumb, then you can apparently just shove a banana peel in there and <laughs> take some credit for a beautiful plant. So those are some interesting interesting ones that we came across. It's so fascinating just how much more you can get out of it. And I'm, maybe I'll buy, uh, I'll buy some, I'll head to Longos and and eat it. Uh, you'll have to follow me on Twitter at Walker Lucas to see if I uh, if I do in fact eat a uh, whole banana, including the appeal. Kim, where can people find you? Where can people learn a little bit more about Equifruit if they want to go go down the banana rabbit hole? Okay, well, I'm super proud of our new website, which came out this year. If you go to Equifruit.com, E-Q-U-I-F-R-U-I-T.com, um, you're going to see a website unlike any other. I'll warn you now to be careful of the shark. <laughs> you can also follow us on socials at Equifruit. So we're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So that's at E-Q-U-I-F-R-U-I-T. 
uh, that'll give you a good sense of, of what we've got going on. But throughout the rest of the year, you'll see some fun stuff. We're basically trying to teach people about the importance of choosing fair trade when you're looking for bananas. So on our, on our fruit, whether you're buying the conventional bananas at Longo's or the organic bananas, you'll see that fair trade label on our bananas, which is what you want to keep an eye out for. So have a look at fairtrade.ca as well to learn more about what that certification means and how money is going back to farmers to make sure that they can grow their businesses. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me uh, on season two of Rolled Up. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. back talking about sustainability when it comes to sustainability and you can call it conscious consumerism or just doing your homework before making a purchase what have you seen as a an overarching trend in that space from when you first started at shopify back in 2006 to now in 2021 oh night and day i mean that sustainability when it came to e-commerce it wasn't even consideration i don't think that it was quite as pervasive as it is now where we can look and clearly there's been a tectonic shift in the way that people shop and consume goods. There's a lot of carbon footprint with shipping boxes all over the world. And, you know, in the case of things like, you know, footwear fashion, of quite frankly, shipping boxes back and forth a lot, right? With, you know, try before you buy, try it on, sending things back and forth and back and forth. So, I'd love to be able to say, hey, this was something that, that came up, but I don't think other than, you know, in the way that people approach packaging, it was really where I saw it kind of take its first hold. Even you saw Amazon with, um, they, they called it frustration-free packaging, which basically meant, you know, no, none of that, the plastic blister pack stuff that you, you know, razor yourself with and draw <laughs> Raw first blood. <laughs> Did you ever see the joke of getting a pair of scissors in that type of packaging and saying, great, yes. how, now what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and if the scissors weren't dangerous enough, the shards of blister plastic was also razor sharp. So packaging is really where it first took hold. And I think as technology has shifted, as this has become more of a prolific change in how people consume goods, now we have a bit more of a, of a race. Um, I think some of that is uh, generational. I think some of it is just a simple understanding that small things can add up to big impacts at the scale that we're talking about. So uh, the differences are huge, and I guess I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave it at that. We can maybe dive in on a few things. But I, I think right now there are multiple ways that people can from both a consumer as well as from a, a merchant perspective, try to reduce the footprint through packaging, through things like um, having local distribution centers so that you've got less of a carbon footprint when it comes to transport and ways to do things like put a carbon offset on your purchases from both the consumer perspective um, as well as covering you know carbon offsets uh, on, the, on the merchant side as well. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's one trend that we saw a lot this year with Earth Day was the the carbon offsets. I know Shopify is carbon neutral. Shipbob is carbon neutral. You mentioned ecocart.io. Mm-hmm. What do you think carbon offsetting will look like in 2025 and beyond? Do you think it's possible to have a, a carbon neutral e-commerce order? I do. I think that there are still definitely some, some challenges. And I think the first wave is there and it's pushing some of the way that we think about that, some of the way that we calculate the environmental costs are helping to accelerate solutions. I don't think anything right now is perfect. People, again, like if we can take small pieces to try to mitigate what we can through uh, an e-commerce industry, through a shipping-based economy, that we can hopefully gain some additional traction over time. I think carbon offsetting is the phase two. The phase one was, you know, and this is again probably 10, 12 years ago, but you know, the plant a tree movement. And every time you make a purchase, we're planting a tree on your path. And interestingly, my founder and CEO, Rias Loris, that was one of his early entrepreneurial endeavors, was around uh, this was in Europe, um, but something similar with you know, plant tree type of program. Um, I think the inherent danger is making sure that when you are shopping that whatever is being stated is actually being done. That's why I think some of the platforms like EcoCart are going to add a a little bit of reliability that it's not just greenwashing and surface veneer, um, but that actually something programmatic is happening behind the scenes rather than just a, you know, a tree banner on your, you know, somebody's homepage. Yeah. It's (laughs) saying we love trees does not equal that you're actually doing anything. Absolutely. There are a lot of companies that that will do that. It's the uh, the joke was McDonald's sourced their hamburgers from a, a company called 100% Canadian Beef. <laughs> so they could say they serve 100% Canadian beef on the menu, but it's not at all. So yeah, just another form of playing around from a marketing perspective. Yeah, and the other thing that we we kind of mentioned was all a lot of stuff with Bitcoin is a more common payment method. Eventually, people or willing to start spending it, I would assume versus just hoarding it. But you see all kinds of stuff that mining it isn't, isn't great socialized payment systems. And then just other stuff like packaging emails, etc. What are your thoughts on, on some of those items, the, the lesser related to sustainability, but still as time go, marches forward, more and more integrated with sustainability. So I think trying to, you know, simply reconcile that we're, largely a consumer-based economy is the first place to start. So to me, you know, I've got a daughter who's 19, almost 20. And, you know, part of it is, you know, I think the second tier marketplaces that still use goods is something that, you know, she's starting to think about, like, you know, it's back in fashion to to go thrifty. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are, you know, platforms specifically around trading and exchanging used goods and lightly used clothing so that it has a second life or third life. Um, so I think those are increasingly ways to kind of look at this in the way that the, the you know, millennials in Gen Z, and I don't know if they like those terms, but the folks that are, are like my daughter's age are starting to think about um, sustainability from that perspective. And it's something that I see more and more with, with my social circle of just wondering where products come from, which I never really saw 
a backlash against Walmart for being what's the opposite of eco-friendly. But Amazon and fast fashion brands, you see people speaking up against the the environmental impact that they they have. And you just didn't see that 20 years ago with the, the big box stores. You didn't see any of that, really. And they were really, if you went behind any of the big box stores, they were an ecological disaster. A lot of early you know, eBay sellers, it was all buying large pallets of things that had been you know, returned to these brick and mortar stores, simply thrown in a big old box, taken to a warehouse somewhere, uh, sold in bulk. You know, they were at least kind of recycled back in that way. But I think the, the way to look at the packaging piece and you know, how you can reduce some of this is, you know, simply being aware, like you said, where is this coming from? <laughs> you know, what is this made of? Um, there's a lot of brands now that are, you know, doing what they can to make first gen products out of second gen materials. So, um, you know, recycled plastic bottles off the beach, um, for instance. I'm not sure where that movement goes, but I think it's at least a step to be conscious about where things are. So I think things like reusable packaging are, are ways to look at it and you go to conferences now and almost everybody well when when conferences before they ended last year but almost everybody's walking around with a hydro flask or some reusable bottle same with when i go to airports uh, mm -hmm. single-use plastic water bottles are very faux pas now um something that i, I rarely see at all anymore some businesses are trying to do similar we actually order from a place here locally that um, before the pandemic, um, they did catering after the pandemic started. They switched to doing like ready-to-go cooked meals so you can get a nice dinner for you know, one or two people, three people. Um, but what they do is they come back every week and they'll pick up their ice, reusable ice packages. Um, oh, wow. And they will pick up their reusable bags and we put them out front. And I think we may move back in that direction. I know there's some companies now here making you know, food containers, that same thing, they're, you know, meant to be collected, uh, rinsed, washed, and put back into circulation a second time, third time, fourth time. I can see that too, especially with the exodus out of cities. And obviously not everyone left cities, but I think it opened up two things. One is just more community focused, where you can either have it picked up or just drive off to the uh, reusing facility because it's not really recycling. And then the... The other thing, the other trend was 15-minute cities that where everything's sort of walkable. So you can pick up your your dairy and the, the milk jug, like the milkman from the 50s. Or you see it with all kinds of beverage companies where you leave the, the plastic delivery tray out or pay a $2 deposit on it or whatever it is so that you're incentivized to, to not keep tossing stuff out. You know, I think we're going to continue to see interesting scenarios of business ideas that help push and proliferate the sustainability piece along. We were just at the beginning. That bell means it's quitting time. I hope you've got a cold one ready to crack or something rolled up, burrito or other. Make sure you're subscribed for the next episode of Rolled Up wherever you get your podcasts.